Welcome to the Indian Science Show. I'm Annie. And I'm Turtle. And this is a podcast where we bring different worldviews together into conversations about science in Indian country. Welcome back to another episode of the show. And this is the first episode of a series we're going to be doing about revolutions. Yeah, it's about fire. We're going way back. Yeah. Taking it way back. <laughs> and we, we really struggled to figure out where we actually wanted to start this because once we started looking into it, we realized, wow, there's there's kind of a lot of different revolutions that aren't really mm-hmm. n- known as a revolution. As, yeah. Because usually historians study revolutions and they look at it as like a political thing. Mm-hmm. But when we looked at the definition, it's just a really rapid change, something that happens really fast. And fire definitely was a rapid change when it came to our own human evolution. Yes. And so we start off by reading a comment that we got about our show, and then we get into the Indigifact, and then we just start with definitions. We define evolution, Mm -hmm. revolution, and then we get into the meat of it, which is literally speaking. (laughs) (laughs) Lots of meat talk in this episode. Yes. And what happens when you eat raw meat? What happens when you eat cooked meat? Yeah. And kind of the differences in why fire seems to be such a revolutionary thing to our evolution. Yeah. And why cooking is a real important thing to us as humans. Mm -hmm. And... So we we get into the evidence and some of the ideas that are behind things like the cooking hypothesis, but we also talk about some of the holes and Mm -hmm. some of the problems with this hypothesis and that a lot of this work in anthropology is not based on just solid measurable evidence, but often off of relative evidence, things that we can look at with our physiology and stuff like that. Yeah, it's a lot of looking at changes of teeth and skulls and jaws and pelvic bones and rib cages Mm -hmm. little tiny changes that really end up making a difference all because of maybe fire yeah and and so the reason we started with fire we get into that in the episode and then all we also kind of talk about other ideas like language and tool use but we're going to save those for other episodes yeah this is just the part one of what did we do 10 10 parts something like that yeah 10 part revolution science series so get ready for some fire revolutions starting now and we are not live but we're recording (laughs) and before we get going into the indigifact uh we just wanted to read a message that we got quite a while ago from Lindsay spear and gotta give a big shout out to jacob for spreading the word about our podcast. So if you're listening, Jacob, thank you. We appreciate it. In this message, Lindsay, let us... I don't know if I'm saying that right, if it's Lindsay or Lindsay, because it's spelled interesting. But anyways... Probably Lindsay. Yeah, that's what I would think, but... Yeah. I have no idea. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) We... So a while back, we were talking about this strange mysterious creature that we didn't (laughs) (laughs) we didn't know what it was partially because we don't we just don't have them over here yeah we don't and i didn't even know that we didn't have them until i saw one over there and realized whoa that's huge i've never seen that thing before (laughs) and it turned out to be a groundhog and we found this out in several ways annie found Mm -hmm. it out by seeing another one and then one of our 
friends in at ESF pointed it out. Yeah. But also Lindsay, Lindsay <laughs> pointed Lindsay. it out too. That So I'll go ahead and just read the message. And she wrote to us saying, Jacob, I'm not sure how to pronounce his last name, just turned me on to your podcast. Nicely done. It's great to hear this coming out of the Syracuse area. There are so many brilliant people here. Can you do an ethnobotany episode? I believe the small for a beaver-like animal is a woodchuck, also called a groundhog. We have a lot of them in the university area, much to the detriment of those of us who grow our own food. Unfortunately, no one really hunts groundhogs anymore. This is one other possibility, however. A friend of mine recently rescued an actual beaver from somewhere near I-81, not far from ESF campus. That's crazy. (laughs) He was brought to a local creek instead of being stuck in the middle of four lanes of traffic. Awesome. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. (laughs) Glad that they brought it back. (laughs) Cool. I wonder how that beaver's doing now. Right. (laughs) And we we got plenty of beavers here. And I know we have rock chucks here, but I'm I may have heard of woodchucks, so I'm wondering if like that that common name mm-hmm. is used for a different animal over here. I wonder if so. Yeah, because I know that we have a lot of like field mice mm-hmm. and like smaller rodents. Yeah, but I don't know about like a large size rodent. Other, yeah, I can't think of one. Yeah, I I wish I knew more about mammalian taxonomy. Because I really don't know much about all the different, like the different taxa yeah. of mammals. I think I'm pretty specified in certain areas. Yeah, I know. I know more. I know more about plants. Oh. I, I'm a plant geek. But thank you, Lindsay. Thank you. We appreciate the message and we appreciate the feedback. And we, I hope you were able to listen to the ethnobotany episode because we ended up doing one, and it turned out fairly well. If you liked it, give us a shout out or give us a review and we'd appreciate any more comments from anyone else if you have something to say about our show Mm -hmm. drop us a review on itunes or you can go to our website at indianscienceshow.wordpress.com and leave us a message or you can send us an email at indianscienceshow at gmail.com now to the indigo fact and we are starting to line up our indigifacts with the actual topic of the episodes a little bit more now Mm -hmm. although we got all sorts of interesting indigifacts oh yeah coming up yeah a bunch of random ones (laughs) (laughs) yeah and it's something that we we've been talking about recently is how difficult it is to study some of these things and to get some of these things into a format that we can talk about in an hour Mm -hmm. it's really tough and especially because in science, we specialize into different areas. We do. And we're focused on things like my focus is a lot of ecology and a lot of social science and how they measure different aspects of culture. Mm-hmm. Whereas Annie is studying something completely different. So yeah. we, we read different literature and we are more familiar with different principles and theories yeah and i feel like as a scientist you tend to specialize in a certain area versus being well that was like environmental science so you get a little piece of every single science but you're not specialized in that science Mm -hmm. yep like it's like the liberal arts Mm -hmm. of science 
Exactly. Because learned get, a lot. Yeah. That's I think that's kind of why I liked environmental science so much. Right. We it's got good. to learn everything yeah. basically. Exactly. And conservation biology it feels like it's kind of the same. You yeah. learn a lot of different biology areas. Hmm. I know I took a conservation biology class when I was in my undergraduate studies, and that was a part of the overarching environmental science. Hmm. So. Yeah, that, that's. I think that's really tough in natural science because, in a certain way, a lot of these different disciplines are pretty broad, mm-hmm. and I know ecology is like that. So, uh, the I guess the point of that the, is to let everybody know that we're mainly having conversations here, and we're not experts in all these different fields, but we are scientists, and we understand how to do research and we understand how to find information and how to find good information i'm great at finding the basics yes so that's mostly what we talk about on these episodes is we we just talk about the basics and if you are curious about any of these topics feel free to send us an email and we'd be more than happy to send you the information that we have Mm -hmm. plus the stuff that we don't bring up on the show because we don't talk about everything or if you guys find something that you find really interesting and you'd like us to know let us know about that. I'm yeah. always down to learn more things. Yeah, me too. And who knows? Maybe we'll do a whole episode on it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because we only have an hour. Can't really touch base on a lot of things that I know I would like to talk about. Um, so we just kind of leave it to the basics. And then hopefully you guys will do more research too. Yeah. And with that being said, let's get into the Indigifact. And so the today's Indigifact is all about, well, yeah, all about homos. Yep. Homo sap- not Homo sapiens, but the Homo genus. And so this is an interesting thing how our, so there's hominins and hominids. Hominins are, are all the apes that are closely related to us. And they're all extinct now. Mm-hmm. We're the only hominin left. So that's like Neanderthals, the Australopithecus group. And then there's the, uh, what is it, Paranth- Paranthropus groups. And then the Artipithecus and around 7 million years ago, give or take a few hundred thousand or a million years, yeah, uh, the, we split off from our common ancestor with chimpanzees. And so a chimpanzee or a gorilla, bonobos, mm-hmm. what's the other one, the orangutan, mm-hmm. those are hominids. So we're hominids mm. and hominins. So hominids are the larger the taxonomic whole. grouping okay. of the great apes. And then we are a smaller classification within the hominid group, hominins. And I had no idea about this for quite a long time. I was, I don't even think I heard the word hominin for a long time. I don't think I have either. Mm. No, I don't think so. I just now recently got into evolution in the sense of not manatees. (laughs) <laughs> manatee so where did manatees they're so weird they're very weird. there's a lot of weird mammals out there yeah they are and that's an interesting fact is that all mammals have facial hair yeah manatees have um uh, they have little whisker like things on their faces mm-hmm. and uh, and like dolphins are born with little mustaches oh my gosh little dolphins yeah and then they lose them eventually <laughs> That'd be weird to see a uh, dolphin with an actual mustache, right. like a <laughs> r- r- like a curled mustache. 
<laughs> so the so the the fact that we're getting to is what is the oldest hom, Homo sapien fossils, and this is a an area that is really tough to actually say facts about because the evidence is so rare. Mm-hmm. And like I used to think that anthropologists and archaeologists they had dozens or hundreds of skeletons and really what often what they're operating off of is one site where they have pieces of Mm -hmm. a skeleton and then maybe another site where they get different pieces and then eventually they put all the pieces together and like they're like oh this Mm -hmm. is a species well it's kind of like with dinosaurs where like if they have one part of the leg then they just assume that the other side is going to be the same so then they just make the same cast of that the parts that they have Mm-hmm. So they're not complete skeletons, but they're just, yeah, like, I don't know, if one's on one half, then they just assume that the other half is going to be the same. So then they can yeah. complete the skeleton that way. Yeah, and I, I know there's a word for that. It's there, it's a it's a very common thing yeah. in archaeology for them to do that. And they use all sorts of interesting metrics and math and models to try and understand these things when they don't have a complete full skeleton, mm-hmm. which makes sense. It would be weird to just kind of to find a, a skeleton all put together, just yeah, hanging exactly. out there <laughs> in the ground. And so for the longest time, we, they assumed that Homo sapiens have been around for 200,000 years. But re- rel- relatively recently, they found a site and this new site, actually, they found older evidence and so what for the for a while they thought that the modern version of homo sapiens appeared right around two hundred thousand years ago and that but they weren't sure how long that took for them to evolve mm-hmm. so recently in morocco they found new evidence that puts that date back to around three hundred thousand years give or take maybe thirty thousand years or so mm-hmm. and they found this that the has the same neurocranial and endocranial, which is the like inside of the skull, that has the same morphology or the same shape or the same form as modern humans. And this is called the Jebel Erud site. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that correctly. And they use this interesting method called thermoluminescence dating, which... Ooh which is pretty fancy and it's way it's a better way to date these fossils mm-hmm. than carbon dating because you can only go back around 40 45,000 years with carbon dating and the, this is something i've been learning more there's all these different dating methods and so this thermoluminescence dating they look at materials or crystalline structures and they can compare that to heating and how they're exposed to the environment and to mm-hmm. uh, like radiation mm-hmm. in the environment. And they can measure how long that structure, the, the, the crystalline minerals, how long those have been exposed to the environment. Oh, okay. And that's, uh, I, I don't really that understand That seems like a fully. very fancy science. Yeah. If yeah. you know more about that, let me know because I'm very confused thermoluminescence and so this is just one way and some of these other articles that we're going to talk about use different mm-hmm. dating technology or methodologies and so that that's the method they use to date this sp- specific site was the thermoluminescence yeah. and so yeah now now there and this is a very solid piece of evidence it's one of the most complete s- 
the one of the most complete skeletons that they found of Homo sapiens, and it pushes that date back to three hundred thousand years, maybe a little more, even maybe three hundred thirty, three hundred forty thousand years ago. Wow, which is fairly significant. That's a big difference. That is a big difference. That's a long time ago. Yeah, it's a little, uh, long. It's it's hard to comprehend those kinds right. of numbers, really. It's kind of well, crazy. Yeah. Well, considering it's probably, what, over 4 billion years old, I guess it's not that long in Earth's timeline. Yeah, but in our barely... timeline, that's a long time ago. Yeah, that, uh, that's so crazy. That's, I mean, a, a million years isn't uh-huh. even that long. No, it's Relative not. to how long life has been on the planet. Right. Which is nuts. It's nuts. So that's the oldest Homo sapiens fossil. But the, the fact that um, it's a long way to getting here is that... The oldest fossils in our genus, the Homo genus, they're quite a bit older. And again, the evidence isn't always totally solid, but they've found fossils in Ethiopia that date to 2.7, 2.8 million years ago. And they've also found evidence going back as far as 1.8 million years ago. And so the oldest fossils in on, that we know of that are human or a part of the homo genus are from homo habilis and i think isn't that lucy i think that's lucy i might be wrong no I, lucy's no, older she, she's that's, a, that's yeah that's yeah. not even homo yeah so that's no. a different a different subject but i think homo habilis is the isn't that the from moving from lucy to homo habilis was the first yeah the first homo. human yeah is what they're saying. Okay. That's like the first human-like animal that appeared in the fossil record. And those date back, that's the 2.8 million years. Wow, that's so long ago. Yeah, so humans, not Homo sapiens, but humans in general, have been around for almost 3 million years. Mm-hmm. That's a long time. Or kind of. That's kind of a long time. <laughs> but relative to Homo sapiens, that's a definitely a long time. So humans have been evolving for quite a while and most of that time was spent in africa so most of these fossils that they find are all they're all in africa the really old ones Mm -hmm. and they don't really find a fossil evidence for humans outside of africa until a few hundred thousand years ago yeah well i think even not even not even that yeah yeah. i think like a hundred to two hundred thousand years is when they started like migrating Mm -hmm. and like really moving out of africa and then the the assumption up until actually just 2017 when they found a new site in California, they assumed that humans have never made it to the Americas until 10 to 15,000 years ago. Yeah. But... The, but who knows? Yeah. At that point, you never know. I do believe, I, I do hope that there are some... What is it? Sea bearing people that ended up coming and floating their way along. Mm-hmm. And you and so they found some genetic evidence for people in South America having not having relations genetically mm. to people in Asia and Southeast Asia and the Pacific Islands. But then that same on the same note that they didn't find that genetic evidence in North American indigenous people. So mm. there there's evidence that says there's different groups of people that populated the Americas. It wasn't just all through the Bering Land Strait. Yeah. And so it's likely that people came through there and people followed the coast and people Mm -hmm. also used boats and potentially came across the Pacific Ocean. I mean, Easter people at at Easter Island, 
That, oh, that's yeah. how they got their canoes. Easter Island. That's so crazy. I can't believe that people actually traveled across <laughs> the Pacific Ocean in canoes. That's, yeah, that's that'd hardcore. be so scary. I know. Oh, no. oh man. I, I can't even imagine what that would be like to be out in the middle of the ocean and you can't see mm-hmm. any land and you're in a canoe just yeah. paddling along. <laughs> Uh, oh my gosh those people are crazy yeah oh no not for me yeah uh, not for me either or i don't know i guess if we live back then it was a part of the culture you yeah kind of well, knew where you're going it's, it's like polynesian people who you know are have evolved to be very very well sea travelers mm-hmm. if that was us if i was polynesian i'd be great at it but i am not so i am a. I I don't think I would do well right now. Yeah, I get creeped out just going out on McDonald Lake in a canoe. Yeah, I, I, I something about being surrounded by water does not make me feel good. I don't like it. That's why I don't like leaving Hawaii because everywhere you looked was just ocean. There was nothing blocking your view. Hmm. What, what island ocean. did you live on? Oahu. Oh, okay. Yeah, I really want to visit Hawaii, especially some of the smaller islands. Mm-hmm. It's a great place for sure. Yeah, I've I've heard it can be pretty tough to make a living there. Oh yeah, no, they have I think the highest pop the highest population of homeless people. Wow, because it's well, I mean, for like per area, for any state, I think is okay. what it ends up being. Because wow, and t- it's a tiny. State. Yeah, well, because you have to ship all your food, so it's really expensive because they have to come by boat. So then that ups the charge of it. So I think it, like milk was really expensive and like cereals really expensive. Mm-hmm. And then the job, like the living wage is the same price as here, but then housing is more because it's a smaller island. Hmm. That would make sense. Yeah. So there's just a lot of social economic factors that play into, they have a really high homeless population and it's warm all year round. So yeah, you can live on the beach. Hmm. And I bet some areas are really hard to grow things, depending on the soil. Because yeah. there's probably a lot of primary succession going on with the lava flows and other mm-hmm. things. So you kind of got to make your own soil. But I bet next to that, some of the secondary and tertiary sec- succession going on, that's probably really rich soil, I can imagine. Yeah, And I think the only island that has lava, I may be wrong, is the Big Island. Because there, it's the most recent island. So then, as the plate tectonic moves Hawaii more uh, northwards, I think it's northwestwards. That's the the very top island is the oldest one. Mm-hmm. So the plate tectonics are just like building upon each other and like moving it. So they move. Yeah, the islands. and so that's why the those northwest islands are smaller, right? Because mm-hmm. they've experienced more erosion. Yeah, yeah. Hawaii is a cool place. Yeah, I I really want to go there. Uh, I know a few people there and I would like to visit them, but Mm -hmm. I would also like to, I love different places, the planet because the plants are so different and the insects are so different. And I mean, I'm, I'm kind of into the animal differences too, but I'm, like I said, I'm a plant nerd. Well, there's no snakes. That always makes me happy. Oh, no snakes. (laughs) There's no snakes. This is something, you know, my mom told me that there's no, hardly any insects there. I don't know if that's true though, because... I don't know how much she got outside in the jungle. Yeah, I'm trying to remember. Like, I don't, I don't know. I feel like there's not a lot of bugs. Yeah, because that's a long way for them to travel. Insects, insects, yeah, bugs. <laughs> I know. Uh, when I was taking, I can't remember what class exactly, but Bill Swaney really. <laughs> I don't know if it was the way he said it or what, or if I just agreed with him. Uh-huh. But I think it was entomology, one of those classes I took when I learned that there's such a thing as bugs. 
And, so insects. Uh, yeah, there's insects and then bugs are like a smaller group of insects. Hmm. And that's when I learned that spiders are not insects. They're bugs? No, spiders are not insects at all. Oh. It's a totally different phylum. Oh, okay. They're a part of the uh, arachnid. Uh-huh. They're arachnids, which is totally separate from insects. They're but both I- arthropods. Oh, okay. So that's what I was thinking because I thought they were arthropods and I thought that that was the same oh, no, as so, insects. So they're in the same phylum, arthropods. Yeah. But they're different classes oh, okay. of arthropods. Hmm. Yeah, interesting. interesting. Insects have six legs, arachnids have eight. Mm-hmm. And uh, arachnids are crazy. Same with like crabs are in the arachnids, crabs hmm. and lobsters. So they're, they're like, and I know there's sea spiders and all sorts of weird stuff. Oh, yeah. Oceans. The oceans are weird. Yeah. And so, okay, so before we get too far off the beaten, uh, off uh, the topic, let's get into the episode. So this is the first episode of a series that we're doing on revolutions. Mm-hmm. And this is a really interesting topic because revolutions, that word revolution is kind of ambiguous. Yeah. And it's used very widely in all sorts of different contexts. Mm-hmm. And so we kind of took the liberty to create our own context for it. And so we're not talking, we'll get to these revolutions at some point, like the scientific revolution and the technological revolution, agricultural revolution. But we, the, when we started looking into this and decided to do this, we realized, wait a minute, the, it's a huge we, we could apply this word to all sorts of different things. Mm-hmm. So we're starting with fire. We're going way back. Yeah. And... Even that, there's multiple different areas mm-hmm. of that, of quote-unquote revolution that happened along with fire. Yeah, so we'll talk about tools and language later on. Mm-hmm. And we this, we, this almost, we were going to do the all three in this first episode, but once we started digging into it, we realized, oh, yeah, well, each is one is yeah. it, it's kind of its own thing. <laughs> exactly. Even though they're, they are related. So just a disclaimer, we are not anthropologists. But this is a fascinating concept. And this is something I've been into for quite a while. And I had no idea how much I didn't know. Mm-hmm. And I guess uh, that's definitely one of the beauties of science is you don't know what you don't know. And you got, we got to remember that. <laughs> so before we get going, though, let's define some terms. That's, I think, one of the most important parts of any conversation that you have where you're actually talking about facts and statistics is you got to define your terms. And so before we get going, we wanted to talk about the difference between evolution and revolution. And they are different. So the definition of revolution is, this is coming from Merriam-Webster dictionary, that, so there's several different yeah. Definitions. Like the and, first part talks about solar systems and plant rotations and things like that. Yeah. And so we're staying away from that. The definition we're doing is a sudden, radical, or complete change. It can also be phrased as a fundamental change in political organization, especially like the overthrow of a, or renunciation of one government or ruler and the substitution of another government by the governed. And so the, it's like the people rise up and replace the government. Mm-hmm. And a third definition is activity or movement designed to affect fundamental changes in socioeconomic situation. 
and so and there's a couple more but uh the the main one is that it's a big shift there's a big change and it happens very rapidly mm-hmm. whereas evolution it also is a word that's describing change over time but typically the way it's defined the the main difference is time and space so it's they're similar but when it comes down to revolution as we can as or evolution a revolution is happening way faster whereas evolution happens over long periods of time so the definition of evolution again from merriam-webster is descent with modification from pre-existing species that's the simplest one but there's also a cumulative inherited change in a population of organisms through time leading to the appearance of new forms and this is the one that i like i think because it touches on specifically what mechanisms are driving it the main ones and so this one goes that this one says that evolution is the scientific theory explaining the appearance of new species and varieties through the action of various biological mechanisms such as natural selection genetic mutation or drift and hybridization Mm. and this is some the theory of evolution is one of the most paradigm shifting things that ever happened in science in a lot of ways that is where modern science came from that's where biology and ecology all these different ologies that people are relatively familiar with now they all come from evolution we would not have these in a lot of ways natural science comes from evolution before the theory of evolution was thought up or created and it took him a long time to figure this out and a lot of heartache and the so the story of darwin is fascinating and i encourage people to look into that guy because he was basically doing and thinking of things in a very different way back then they thought about change in nature and history way different than we think about it now so in a lot of ways the theory of evolution was a revolution Mm mm-hmm because it caused one of the most rapid shifts in scientific thinking that ever happened ever and so they they have the thing like the copernican revolution and i don't know if this is an actually actual study of that of historians that studies this stuff i don't know if they call it a revolution yet but in my eyes it totally is a revolution hmm. just the the whole theory of evolution mm-hmm. so those are so the main differences between revolution and evolution is primarily time and scale so evolution can happen over large geographic scales over long periods of time revolutions typically are more isolated and happen in shorter periods of time so the reason why we're focusing on fire as a revolution is that it kind of was a revolution as far as human evolution goes. Yeah. Like we were talking about earlier, humans have been around for a long time, potentially two to three million years. And bipedal apes, apes that are walking upright, they've been around for seven million years. Yeah. And it's only been within the last million or so years that brain size rapidly increased Mm -hmm. and tool use became really widespread and all these other anatomical changes happened in 
the homo genus. And so that's why we're thinking, well, let's start with fire because it's kind of a big topic and it's really challenging to talk about it because there's not that much evidence that goes that far back. No, definitely not a lot of evidence. That's for sure. And so we'll talk about as we'll talk about some of the main, the basic pieces of evidence as it's understood now. And so the oldest evidence for fire use goes back to, and this is the solid evidence. There's other evidence, but it's not conclusive evidence. Mm-hmm. But some of the oldest solid evidence of fire use goes back to around 1.7 million years ago. Which is, I mean, and and not even, and that's not even that solid. And this is coming from a paper from 1989 from an author named James. And this is a very widely cited piece of literature that a lot of scientists now that are studying this, a lot of anthropologists now that are studying this, mm-hmm. they cite this guy. But the oldest solid evidence is about a million years ago. And this is relatively recently discovered because up until this discovery and this, what it is, is it's a, it's a cave in South Africa. And it, so this, it's called Wonderwork Cave and it's in the Northern Cape province of South Africa. And this is where they used a different form of dating called micromorphological and Fourier transform infrared microspectroscopy. Microspectroscopy. That's a big word. Yeah. So so MFTIR. And so they use this method to analyze sediments at this site at Wonderwork Cave. And Mm -hmm. what they found was that uh, they found burned bone and ashed plant remains. And so that, and they, they kind of ruled, they ruled out that it just washed into the cave from outside because it was so far into the, a certain distance into the cave. Mm-hmm. So that kind of got ruled out. And that's one of the main arguments against a lot of the evidence for older fire use is that, well, the cave is kind of downhill, it's downsloped yeah. and the fire, it, it may have just been a forest fire or a fire caused by lightning and then uh-huh. the sediment got washed into the cave. But that's not the case for this bit of evidence. So this is some of the earliest evidence for burning in the archaeological record a million years ago. Well, then I was reading somewhere how they also um, crossed off the idea of backwano starting the fire. Because backwano has the potential to really be flammable. Hmm. So it wasn't caused by bat poop either. Yeah. Interesting. I didn't know that. And I, I wonder, so how, I'm curious how that would start on fire. I don't know either. I just read that somewhere. I was like, that's the weirdest thing. But it's not because of bat poop either. Hmm. So, well, that's it's cool. It's safe to say that it's probably caused by our early humans. Yeah. And that's, and so, and this cave has been occupied over and over by humans for a long, even longer than mm-hmm. this fire evidence. It's just that this particular bit of evidence is for fire use and so that's the oldest relatively solid evidence of fire use by humans and so that's that's older than homo sapiens so that indicates that fire was used by neanderthals and homo erectus and and so now we're getting into a little bit of more uh, ambiguous Mm -hmm. evidence and 
Yeah. And how and how it actually played a role in human evolution. Yeah, because a lot of people have kind of categorized them into like three different areas. Mm-hmm. So like the first one is fire foraging for resources across landscapes. So understanding like how a lightning or wildfire can be used and like making sure like they'll go uh, what was I reading that the they potentially would like get a twig on fire bring it back to where they are and then just continually keep that fire burning for as long as they could yeah which may have caused some animosity with other groups because they had the fire so they just kept it going so it wasn't generally that they regularly used it it was just that it was like this rare occurrence that happened on the landscape that then they used Mm -hmm. but then the other it's the second one was social domestic hearth fires for protection and cooking and then the the third one was fires used as tools and technology processes uh, like kind of like firing pottery yeah so fire kind of led the way for all sorts of other things mm-hmm. and there's evidence for tool use just as far back but well the, we're, that's that'll be another episode we'll get into that more um because again these topics there's a lot going on here and it's such an important part of human evolution that they even think that it actually is the reason why our brains got large in the first place it's mm-hmm. one of the theories of the, the cooking hypothesis but the the oldest evidence for regular use of fire, not just the oldest evidence of fire. So there's the kind of those two categories of evidence that they find some sites where they have concluded that, okay, burning happened here. And mm-hmm. it probably wasn't lightning. It probably wasn't grass fires. It probably wasn't a natural fire. And they, they do that by looking at the structure of these different molecules and these different particles and th- they determine that those can only form because of a certain level of heat that you can't, you just can't get in typical natural fires. And so they relate those with campfires and that has a whole, that has a lot of implications for social evolution and anatomical evolution. Mm -hmm. So, which we'll get onto in a little bit. And, and that, so the, so that's, that's one form of evidence that they find these sites. But then there's other evidence where they actually look at, well, when was the first widespread use of fire? Mm-hmm. And the oldest evidence for the widespread use of fire is only about 125,000 years old. And so that's why it's difficult to say that this actually changed our brain size because we've been around for at least twice as long as that, right? Yeah. So... If we didn't start using fire regularly until around 125,000 years ago, it's likely it didn't actually play a role in growing bigger brains, which is interesting. Maybe it did, maybe it didn't. Yeah. And it's one of those gray areas. Yeah. There's a lot of gray area in this episode. There is. And I think yeah. that that's true for a lot of this discipline, for anthropology in mm-hmm. general. Um, unless they're studying people right now that are alive right now Mm -hmm. it's really tough to try and say anything for for certain about behavior and so they they usually look at people now and compare them to indigenous people that are around now and then look at how our anatomy is now compared to what they find in the fossil record yeah and then they compare that to chimpanzees and try to understand how things could have changed and there's all sorts of ways to do it. And it's a constantly changing, constantly evolving 
discipline. Mm-hmm. And like I said I, earlier, I'm not an anthropologist, but this is a, such a fascinating topic that it it seemed like a really good place to start as far mm-hmm. as revolutions goes, because in a, in so many ways, fire use was the revolution that led to tool use, mm-hmm. to potentially led to language, to more complex social structures, mm-hmm. and all sorts of different things, maybe even to having a bigger brain. And so that, and then when we, if you look at the the history of life on the planet, goes back over four billion years, or is it no three billion years? No, it's four. Is it's it four? like over four. Yeah, I mean, it was almost right after the planet formed mm-hmm. that life started popping up. Oh yeah, maybe it was around four. Because I think four and a half billion years ago is when the planet formed, it was created, and then it took a while for everything to kind of calm down. Yeah, and then yeah, so maybe a little bit, maybe around three. Yeah, so. Uh, if anybody knows that, drop us a comment and let us know when, when did life pop up. I'm pretty <laughs> sure it's between three and four billion years. But I mean, even if it was just three or even two billion years, which I know for sure uh, that they, they they've found evidence that goes back oh, a long time. Yeah. A few million years is not that long. And if fire popped up just a couple million years ago, that is such a short amount of time for such drastic changes to happen. And so with the early homo species, they had relatively small brains. And then all of a sudden when it got to homo erectus, the brain size increased dramatically within a span of a half a million years. And 500,000 years on evolutionary timescales is a really short amount of time. Mm -hmm. So that's why we decided that this is potentially one of the first revolutions that happened for humans is fire. Mm-hmm. And it, how it affected our evolution in such well, I think profound it, it ways. pushed our evolution in a different direction. Yeah, I think that's what it really did. Fire like really led to other things because it led for, and we'll we'll talk about this later on. I don't want to get too into it because we'll talk way more in depth later on about kind of what the changes are. Yeah, and so I mean we could talk about that now. I mean, so there's these there's these bits of evidence, yeah. and there, it's really tough to say conclusively well, like sleeping, in one way or another. Sleeping and running long distances, you know, are examples of changes that can only really occur because of fire. So there's, but there's some evidence that kind of is contrary to that. That maybe fire use happened independent of growing brains and walking upright. But that, it makes a lot of sense that like if you're sleeping on the ground, right, mm-hmm. and it's the middle of winter, how the hell are you going to stay warm? Yeah. I mean, even in Africa, it gets really pretty cold at night. Yeah. Maybe not that cold, but I in think... the desert are, for sure. Yeah. You also have to worry about predation as well at night, you know, and so if you're not surrounded. So I think that's what... Yeah. So one of the issues that they said about sleeping at night was they used the comparison of antelopes. And like different ungulants within Africa Mm -hmm. saying that they don't sleep, um, you know, they don't need fire to sleep at night. But then it ends up being really weird about how their REM cycles and their sleep cycles are very different. So they sleep shorter periods of time, you know, versus humans and chimpanzees, which usually sleep eight, 10-ish hours that they need. Uh And then their REM sleeps are different. And so they're more, antelopes are more inclined to be aware of predation throughout the night versus humans or early humans where they hit that REM cycle and it's that mm. deep, deep sleep. 
Yeah, and so if you're spending more time sleeping and it's during the night where typically a lot of animals are more active at night, mm-hmm. then that would make a, that's a very strong argument for a fire use very, fairly early in human evolution. I mean, relatively speaking, I mean, millions of years ago, even as far back as Homo erectus, mm-hmm. because they didn't have that much body hair. Say, and especially Neanderthals or Neanderthal. That, that always sounds a little bit pre- pretentious, Neanderthal, because I think that's how it's supposed to be pronounced. Yeah. But I grew up calling them Neanderthals. So every, I don't know, it just seems weird. To, I've never been able to make that switch to Neanderthal. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. So it says here that um, uh, ungulates sleep briefly. A total sleep time per 24 hours is less for aerodactyl. So it's about 5.3 hours. Um, what is it? Persodactyls are 4.8 hours. And then in mammals, including primates, they need 10 10.3 hours of sleep. Hmm. Wow. Every day? Yeah. Dang, I In definitely don't get, I don't get 10 hours of sleep. Yeah. Well, I mean, guess I back then, you know, you had to think about it, that you were working harder for your food. You were working harder to maintain your calorie intake. So a lot of it was different. So I bet you probably did need a lot more sleep back then to like kind of yeah, keep your body regulating in a way. I know some of the research and the anthropologists have found as far as modern indigenous people, mm-hmm. modern hunter-gatherers, is that they actually spend less time working than people in urban societies. They spend less time working and more. they have more downtime. Mm. And that's one of the arguments for the advent of language, for all these stories and how ancient peoples had so much star knowledge. Mm-hmm. is because they sat around looking at the stars more than people, modern people do. And that's a really fascinating idea that fire had that it was that profound it actually changed the way we congregated and the way we socialized it changed the way we manipulated our environment and as far as like burning to to change vegetation patterns or burning for hunting purposes Mm -hmm. and so all these are well established within anthropology as far as uses of fire for hunter-gatherer people and that's one of the ways they try to understand what were people like in the past but that's challenging because Basically, anywhere you go, and except for maybe a few uncontacted tribes in the Amazon, mm-hmm. every hunter-gatherer society that exists now has in one way or another been exposed to and affected by modern technology. So it's tough to draw those conclusions. But that's one of the ways they try and understand it. Now, the question is, is did, did human species or did, uh, did these homo species, these ancient relatives of ours, did they use fire for warmth first or for cooking? That's an interesting question. Was because I know that another one of the arguments against the cooking hypothesis is that it may not have been cooking that created a larger brain because our brain is so energy intensive that mm-hmm. it, we have to have more nutrients than like a chimpanzee. And a chimpanzee spends most of its day chewing. And for if we were to ingest enough calories to be able to maintain our brains, we would have to be, we'd be chewing for around nine hours a day. That's so many, so much chewing. Yeah, and at least foraging for food. But Mm -hmm. evidence from hunter-gatherer societies shows that that's definitely not the case. And so one of the arguments against the cooking hypothesis is that it was this more efficient 
gathering, more efficient food acquisition. So we were being more, we were just better at finding nutrient dense sources of food that didn't necessarily have to be cooked. Well, meat, I think, played a large role of brain size as well. Yeah. So it was consistently being able to, I think they said that a lot of them back then were scavengers Mm -hmm. and maybe eating smaller um, mammals, lizards, um, some little smaller animals where you would get a little bit of meat, but it was like consistently a little bit of meat. So it was an increase in how well your hunting is. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the, definitely one of the hallmarks of humans is we're very efficient hunters. Mm -hmm. And that goes way back in the archaeological record, them finding fire in relation to tools, Mm -hmm. all the way back to Neanderthal, Thal, Neanderthals, Homo, what is it, Homo Neanderthalus, Mm -hmm. and then Homo erectus. They find evidence at those sites of fire use and tool use. So, and the, some of the interesting ideas that I came across was that maybe even Homo habilis used fire. Mm. But the oldest evidence for that is around um, that one a million years ago. Yeah. So that's what comes into the role of when was regular fire used when they can make it themselves versus Mm -hmm. the landscape fire. Because, yeah, I mean, Homo habilis probably did use fire in a certain way. Yeah. Just maybe not the way that later on that really kind of, especially with the cooking hypothesis, really pushed forward. Um smaller jaws, smaller teeth, um, in areas like that. Yeah. And that, that hypothesis, the cooking hypothesis is a, is a fair, it's like there, there's still a lot of argument about it in mm-hmm. anthropology. They, they're not sold on this idea and yeah. there's a lot of anthropologists that don't buy it. Yeah. I think that it's out of all the theories, like I think that definitely meat help increase brain size, but I think that cooking, the cooking hypothesis really pushed forward um, homo evolution in a way that was very rapid. Mm-hmm. And that's why it's, it's such a, it's such an important part of evolution that it, it, it definitely qualifies as a revolution as, mm-hmm. as we're using that word in, in our evolutionary story. And it's, uh, it's, it's really hard to wrap my mind around some of this stuff because fire has been around basically as long as plants, mm-hmm. the big woody plants have been around. So, I mean, it, fire has been here for hundreds of millions of years, whereas life has been around for way, way longer. So the fact that there's been fires around since dinosaur times and that only recently, within the last couple million years, they start finding evidence for specific types of fire, mm-hmm. like these hearth fires and these specific fires as they may, be, may have been used in conjunction with hunting yeah. and landscape disturbance. And so that not only did it change our evolution, but it changed the evolution of landscapes and of ecosystems. And now we have some of these ecosystems. I know it's, it's one here, like an example here in Montana is the camas, which is directly related to fire as mm-hmm. well as I know bitterroot has relations to fire and most of these forests around here have major relations to fire like oh, yeah. well, ponderosa pine is a perfect yeah. example well i mean and so one of my one of the the interns that works at the national bison range with me he mm-hmm. is from 
Oh, um, Iowa. And so we have a fire burning out there right now. And he was like, oh, my gosh, it's really smoky. And I was like, hold on. It's going to get really smoky because we get a lot of wildfires. I think that's just something that, like, our landscape is used to at this point. Like, fire has always been around. And, like, it helps aids in a lot of plants. Like, the California black oak. Mm. They really, really need light fire regimes so that it clears out the bottom. And then it helps keep the acorns pretty fresh. Yeah. And over in that same area, maybe a little more north, there's these oak savanna mm-hmm. ecosystems where the use of fire and the cultivation of camas had huge impacts on the mm-hmm. landscape and created these these ecosystems that just would not exist without that fire use. Mm-hmm. And the in the use of fire in that context, the there's a lot of evidence that where they found through like paleo ecology. Mm-hmm. Just going and taking sediment cores and looking at fire regimes of the past, they've found that it's very likely that th- these fire regimes would not exist like that in nature, where more natural fire regime- regimes have different time intervals uh-huh. in between the fires and they have different intensities, and it just results in a different landscape. Yeah. Well, I think also fires um, provide opportunist- opportunistic yeah, that's the right word. Yeah, Explo- exploitation. That's a big word. Opportunistic exploitation. exploitation. Yeah, of wildfires because then like other land animals or predators can go into after the wildfire has burned. Kind of pick out predators, see if there's any like dying or burnt victims that they can consume. But then it also like for deer and like bovine animals, um, they use the ashes to lick and then it's like kind of helps their uh, salt contact, salt content. Huh. Interesting. And salt is so important and mm-hmm. it's it's fairly rare. It's hard yeah. kind of hard to find. And that's why salt licks are so mm-hmm. they're they're important yeah, for animal movements. Yeah, and that's also why I'm against using salt on um for ice steering like on roads because you'll get a lot of animals that will tend to migrate towards roads then mm. and lick the salt ice off of there. Yeah, and a lot of human civilizations are directly correlated to salt mm-hmm. deposits. The, some of the biggest civilizations oftentimes people think are related to river valleys mm-hmm. and water sources, which is totally true. But it's very likely that it wasn't just the water. It was yeah. that there was salt there. There was this big source of salt nearby also. And that's why that's why the Erie Canal was created to transport salt primarily. I mean, it was salt. for other reasons, but mm-hmm. that was the major reason why that got built and why the Northeast has so many big cities is because there's salt there. Lots of, plenty of salt. (laughs) Okay, so I guess we should actually talk about the cooking hypothesis now. I think that we've jumped around a lot, brought it up a few times, but maybe we should like really just hone in on that. Because I Mm -hmm. think that that, to me, this hypothesis really has the most evidence for me that really kind of helps me understand our own evolution especially when it comes to certain caloric intakes and kind of time energy. And I think that that really, really pushed our evolution forward very, very rapidly. Yeah. And it, it makes a lot of sense. It makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it, it, so it's a really cool hypothesis. And Mm -hmm. the, the idea is that the fire actually drove physiological changes in humans to, to favor running 
to favor upright posture and to even favor a larger cranial size. Yeah, and even less hair. Yeah. And so, and this was, so this hypothesis was coined by a guy named Richard Wrangham. And till this day, he's still trying to develop this. Oh, yeah. He's still like, I see YouTube video. He has a lot of YouTube videos out there. If mm-hmm. you want to watch him, very interesting guy. Very great to hear him talk about. But a lot of our information is coming from him. Yes. And there, he's got plenty of skeptics, mm-hmm. which that's good. That's good. That's how science moves forward. And mm-hmm. that's how science stays robust and how people get called out for their bullshit. Yeah. But so far from what I found, every argument against the hypothesis, he's been able to counter mm-hmm. that with very strong, well-founded evidence and well-founded theories. And and he does his own like experiments as well. Mm-hmm. So he spends a lot of time, oh, wait, with the Had- Hadza? It's one of the last hunter-gatherer societies in Africa. Yeah. And so he spends time with them and he understands how they... And he asks them to do experiments for him. Mm-hmm. So he asked them one time to not cook their food just to see what it would be like. Oh, yeah. You know? So he would he has these this group where he really, really knows and he really focuses on and he really appreciates their culture and like really understanding kind of how they can live in a hunter-gatherer society today. Yes. And so a lot of the evidence for this hypothesis is not direct. It's not direct evidence, but it's uh, evidence that you can correlate to different aspects of our physiology. And one, I think one of the best ones is our gut, the, the structure of our gut. Mm-hmm. It's, it's closer to a dog than any of the ungulates, any of these creatures that are creatures, <laughs> any of these animals creatures these beings that eat raw food mm-hmm. their gut structure are is way different than ours yeah because they need larger longer intestines right mm-hmm. so that they can sit yeah and there. multiple stomachs yeah and like uh that's what ungulate that's what, yeah. where that word comes from is they have a special structure in their digestive system that require that actually holds bacteria and that it's there's all these different stages to break down this raw food, mm-hmm. and we don't have that stuff. No, so we're really not suited to be eating raw plants. No, so yeah, so that's where a lot of their evidence actually comes from is actually doing studies on people who are rod foodists. Mm-hmm. They love that raw food diet, and their gut microbiome is way way different than mm-hmm. people who eat cooked food. Well, and um, I I read somewhere in this paper that uh, um, what was it that? Is that your phone? <laughs> my phone. My sister's calling me. Um, that people who are eat meat with a raw food diet are not as healthy as vegetarians who eat cooked food. Interesting. So, are they eating raw meat? You they so they do that kind of blended system and then they only cook it up to uh they use light heat up to maybe around 114 degrees. Wow, that's not very hot. It's not very hot at all. Yeah, and a lot of I I know that so my my roommate over in Syracuse, Syracuse last mm-hmm. semester, he works as a food inspector. Ooh. And he would not like that. No, I mean cuz like I think for proper like meat, I think well, meat you can eat raw if you would like yeah if it's fresh right yeah but i think like 140 ends up being like 130 140 is like medium rarish medium yeah and most pathogens and organisms they start dying around 120 yeah 
Well, I mean, so and that's what. Um, so the raw foodists, they don't have to work as hard for their food. So it's not a lot of energy and exercise doing that. But then they also don't have the same kind of diseases that um, pre-humans had. And then so also, the raw foodists don't? Raw foodists, yeah. So they don't have to deal with, uh, no, they have to deal with like that kind of idea. But then they also have this ability of grocery stores where their food doesn't. It's processed depl- still. It's processed foods. Yeah. You know. And it doesn't. It's got higher shelf life, mm-hmm. right? Because it's the process. They have all these pres- preservatives. Yeah. So in a way, they're really not, it's not raw completely. Unless they're just eating veggies out of the garden, which I know yeah. a lot of raw vegans, they eat nothing but raw vegetables. And mm-hmm. I've thought about that. And I and just from my knowledge of plant physiology and plant biology itself, plants don't want to be eaten. They're, they want to yeah. live too. Some of the only plants that actively try to get eaten are fruits because mm. they, they have to. And a lot, there's plenty of seeds that have to travel through a digestive tract of an animal in order to – it's called scarification. And they, they will not germinate unless that happens. Hmm. So, that's interesting. Yeah, and so fruit's really one of the and, – and, uh, and so that's where some uh, – there's some evidence in anthropology and – uh, where they found that that's potentially where our color vision and where our, our eyesight, why humans have so such like our eyesight's so good. Mm-hmm. And there's not many animals that have as good of eyesight as we do. And like we can't smell very well. Yeah. We're not very strong. We're not that fast, but we have really excellent uh, vision and we can focus in on stuff really mm-hmm. well. And so one of the arguments for why we developed color vision and some, how some animals don't. Yeah. Is to identify ripe fruit. Mm. And that's why red is such a captivating color for people and why it actually it changes our physiology. When we see red, it literally changes how we respond biochemically mm. in our brain, in our body. That's why like people say, don't get red a red sports car <laughs> because it's going to attract the attention of a cop right. no matter yeah. what kind of police, what kind of personality they got. It's just a part yeah. of our evolution. I think the best color they said to get was like a yellow or white car. Hmm. I think that's like the least one to get you pulled over. Really? I think so. I mean, I may I be think wrong. I've heard that too. But I think it's yellow and white. I like black. White. Yeah, I, I generally like black. I have a great car now, but. I guess maybe I don't really like yellow cars. I, I don't like that yeah. color for a car. I like that color in other ways. but I'm not a huge yellow fan. I mean, yellow is happy. Yellow yeah. makes me happy. Yellow is one of those happy colors. I like to color with yellow. Like yeah. if I'm coloring with crayons or something or painting i'm a big yellow fan but yeah i I really i like red though red Mm. is cool but i don't i really don't like it as much as black which is kind of weird because it's (laughs) technically not a color right and white's okay but i'm I'm not a big fan of white either (laughs) as far as uh they get dirty fast yeah yeah um so so raw raw food one of the experiments they did of course with mice i mean that tends to be the the easiest ones that really because mice don't have feelings right they well (laughs) oh man i have rats and they're the cutest little things no it's it's definitely that so it's it's a weird conundrum because how else are we supposed to do these experiments exactly and i i wouldn't say that it's a bad experiment so they just wanted so a lot of the things that happens with raw foodists is that they have extremely 
loss of weight, low BMI. So they're not what very over uh, the BMI. It's your body mass index. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> just just making sure we define acronyms. Yeah. Um, so it's that thing that lets you know if you're overweight, underweight, or if you're right there for your height. And so these raw foodists have a really, really low BMI. And so because of that, they have – okay, this is a little side topic that I found very interesting. But because of that, they there's 50% of women that are on an all-raw diet that are unable pr- to produce, to yeah. reproduce. That's a big deal. Yeah, but like – Especially when you're thinking, talking evolution. Exactly. And natural selection. Yeah, but with there's a high BMI and excellent function when it comes to like vegetarians that eat cooked diets. So that mm. shows you right there that cooking wow. is way more important than meat when it comes to yeah, your so own welfare. That's right. So their their ovarian, oh, the ovarian function mm-hmm. is just better. Yeah. When women are eating cooked, cooked foods. Food. Yeah. That's a big deal. In the, it, so it showed up within this whole um, experiment with with rats or mice. So they did a feeding experiment um where they did all three major micro macronutrients so long chain carbohydrates uh proteins and plant lipids so when the mice were on raw diets which kind of contained sweet potatoes um meat and peanuts the mice typically lose weight but if they had the cooked diets they typically maintain their weight hmm and again that's that has ma- that's really important because if you're losing body mass, especially muscle mass, mm-hmm. you're just you're not going to be as effective as a, of a hunter, and you're not going to be as healthy, and that's going to get passed on to your offspring, and th- so they're not going to be as healthy, and then it just compounds after that, mm-hmm. and that's the whole idea of natural selection and of these environmental pressures, basically weeding out certain parts parts of the population and not allowing them to reproduce for too long because nature wants the best of the best of the best they do it always needs to be the best and as far as chewing time goes just think about the difference in chewing time between a piece of raw broccoli compared to a piece of steamed broccoli Mm. and it's just it's a fraction of the time yeah. And so for us to be able to develop these skills for hunting and to, to develop culture, to develop tools and social, all these really complex social structures, it makes a shit ton of sense that fire was at the center of that. Mm-hmm. Because when we cook our food, we don't have to search for as much of it and we get more nutrient return. We get more, right. it's more bioavailable in our gut. And again, that goes back to our gut structure. Which is yeah. closer to a dog than an ungulate. You know, which makes sense because um, dogs, especially domesticated dogs, not wolves, um, were kind of intertwined with human evolution. Yeah, and um, but not that far back though. Not like what we're talking about hundreds of thousands of years, millions of years. Yeah. I think some of the old – so now I'm kind of – this is outside of my, my – uh, some of the stuff that I've been reading. So I, I'm, I might be wrong on that. Maybe maybe our relationship with dogs well, does I go just, back hundreds of years. I just know domesticated dogs. I don't know about like wolves or other canine species, but yeah. I know like domesticated dogs. Well, they're the we same species. Now. Yeah. Wolves well, and dogs. Well, yeah, but they have evolved like differently because yeah. they were able to do scraps from 
humans doing there. And they had that ability to kind of get byproducts from humans. Mm -hmm. They evolved a little different than that of like wolves or foxes or other, you know, what are they? Canady. Canady. Yeah. You know, other than those groups. Yeah. Even still though, that family, dogs are in that family and they still, they should be eating raw meat. That's why when, when I, if I were to feed my dog, I don't have a dog, but when I did have a dog, I was just, I was adamant about at least not having all these weird corn fillers and soy fillers, all these weird plants in their food because their, their digestive system is not designed for that. Just like our digestive system is not designed for eating lots of raw plants, right? especially raw plants. There's, there's a lot of argument about how much raw meat we can handle because mm-hmm. there's plenty of hunter-gatherers that eat raw meat, especially up in the northern latitudes. Yeah. But I think that's an important point is talking about cooked plants versus raw plants. Because you that's think, the big one. Because you think that there wouldn't be a difference. But one another research that they did was regarding... Um, I'm going to get this wrong. Uh, people who need to have the elostomy, is that what it is? Elostomy? Procedure? Well, um, I, don't, I don't think I've heard of that. It's where you have to remove some or all of your colon and rectum. Ooh, that sounds like fun. Yeah. <laughs> Dang. You know, so they rely heavily on having like really good foods because in that point, like you don't have. You well, probably have to cook your food, right? Yeah. So. Because um, I know a lot of the fermentation happens at the end of our mm-hmm. digestive tract. So cooking food also really increases that digest- digestibility. Why yeah. are there so many hard words on this episode? <laughs> yeah, a lot of multisyllabic. Yeah. Digestibility is increased. Um, and that's because with starch, which I didn't think about. I didn't think about starch in my foods. Mm-hmm. So they did an experiment with the five domesticated plants, oat, wheat, plantain, green bananas, and potatoes. Um, and so when hum- when they were eaten by humans, it indicated that cooking starch is rated- raises the digestibility in the small intestines by the amounts that vary across the foods from 28% to 109%. Whoa. That's a huge difference. Yeah. And and then that too, that reduces the amount of energy that you have to. So mm-hmm. you have to eat less food because it's you're eating cooked food. Yep. You don't have to eat as much. That's why like gorillas have those gigantic guts is they have to, They not only do they eat most of their lives when they're awake, mm-hmm. but they have to eat a bunch of vegetation to actually get enough energy to support mm-hmm. their bodies. To support yep. their muscle growth and all these and all the different systems that require energy to run. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so fifty percent of starch energy is recovered from the colon, and the median increase in the net energy gain is about thirty point two percent. Wow, that's really interesting. Mm-hmm. And that so it, in a lot of ways, a lot of this it comes down to an an energy budget budget issue. Yeah, exactly. Where when you're cooking your food. There, you you don't need nearly as much energy to break it down mm-hmm. because you, you know, that's really what's going on is it's you're pre digesting that food before yep. you ever even put it in your mouth. That's where that's why every single culture that I've ever looked at has some form of fermentation process also, and it's all about that that process before you put it in your mouth to make sure that you're not going to have to use your own personal energy in your body to break it down. And I wonder if maybe that's mm. just a part of our evolution that we we had to do that stuff because of the way our guts work. Mm-hmm. 
where our stomachs and our intestines work. So, yeah, yeah. that's it, it's just more efficient. Yeah. And I think that that's like really shows with the this cooking hypothesis is that it really focused in on making sure that the energy consumed isn't like a waste. It was making sure that everything had a purpose and then everything worked in a good way. And I think that that really increased the evolution of where we are now. Yeah. And, and it would be really hard to support a large brain. We'd have to be really efficient scavengers Mm -hmm. for the, for our brains to have gotten as big as they are. But that's one of the arguments against the cooking hypothesis is that they're kind of independent of each other, that we could very well have just gotten very efficient at finding the right nutrients. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's and that's something that they talk about raw food is, is because they have all of these foods at grocery stores mm-hmm. that the increase in energy isn't the same. So... There, in that article, they talk about chimpanzees in Kanawara, not saying that right, community um, in a national park in Uganda. Um, they were able to eat 5% more of their fruit in their diet than usual, and that's thanks to improved fruit availability. And they experienced a four-month reduction in waiting, in, wait, in waiting time to conception. Hmm. So... We, and I've, I've tried to do this, but I'm not very good at it, is seasonal eating. And, like, I think that that really limits your time energy poor towards food. Yeah. Well, so basically you're just not going to be getting as much mm-hmm. nutrients as a modern raw eater would. Get. Yeah. Because someone in a modern society eating, choosing to eat raw food, mm-hmm. they have way more options. Yeah. So they don't have to spend nearly as much time trying to find the right options. Mm-hmm. Whereas some parts of the year, you're, you're just not going to have access to fruit. Yeah. You're not going to have access to root vegetables. Mm-hmm. And so there needs to be some kind of preservation going on. And most of the preservation that happens is cooking yeah, or smoking or fermenting things. And all three of those things changes the, the nutrient profile. I know like with Camus, that's a really, yeah, r- really exactly. good example of, how cooking changes it and actually makes it digestible. Mm-hmm. Before it's cooked, you basically can't digest camas. But once it's cooked, especially the way it gets cooked in these these uh, earthen ovens, mm-hmm. is that it's a carbohydrate that yeah we can actually handle in our gut. Whereas before it's cooked, you, you're ba- you're basically better off not eating it. Hmm. And that's that's a big deal. That's a really, I've said that a lot this episode. That's such a, that's a big deal. (laughs) I mean, fire is. This whole episode's a big deal. It's a huge one. And that's why we chose it for our first episode Mm -hmm. is that it's, it's revolutionary. What fire did to not just us, but all life on the planet Mm -hmm. because we started using it at really big scales. And from what I understand, basically every terrestrial plant, ecosystem in one way or another is adapted to fire even these ecosystems that have like 300 400 500 year fire return intervals they are adapted to the absence of fire Mm. so fire plays a role in all terrestrial plant ecosystems yeah just from my knowledge maybe maybe not like the taiga or uh, up in north of the boreal forest maybe not quite up there but um 
again, the absence of fire drives the plants that are growing there, the animals and the insects, all mm-hmm. these in the microbiome, in the soil, all that stuff is changed because there's no fire. So in a way, it's, I guess, uh, now I'm kind of maybe, maybe I'm giving fire a little too much credit there. But Well, I think that you also have to think about one thing that I I know when I was reading one of these articles that they talked about was, do you think Homo erectus actually had the cognitive ability to cook? Mm. You know, of like actually... To use it, not... Um, to, to not just scavenge mm-hmm. from burned carcasses, but to actually yeah. cook with it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so that's one of the holes in this argument is the evidence just is not there. There's not enough solid, measurable evidence. A lot of the evidence for the cooking hypothesis comes from the indirect evidence from physiological changes in our <laughs> jaws, in our teeth, in our pelvic structures, and mm-hmm. how we are walking upright and, and able to run. So running... Again, you, you can't have fur. You can't have lots of body hair if you're going to be a runner. Mm-hmm. So that, that's an, another. So it's all this indirect evidence, and then sleeping on the ground. But there's there's plenty of holes in this hypothesis, and one of them oh, yeah. is is that just why were population densities still so low? Yeah. If we were, if we had if we had fire and we we're able to get so many so much more nutrients into our system, how come our populations stayed so low? Mm-hmm. even relative to the pre-fire species. So that that's that's a question that still hasn't been really fully answered. Or and that, the other one here is that why was Homo habilis intermediate? It wasn't quite home, it wasn't quite human, mm-hmm. but it also is not one of the what, what, Australopithecines. It's not quite like them. Yeah. And it's got a way smaller brain size than Homo erectus. So if if they were using fire... Yeah. Why? Maybe maybe they were the ones that first discovered using fire and first started using it, but it wasn't widespread. It wasn't mm-hmm. a part of their of their behavior as a species. Yep. But then once Homo erectus came along, the brain, and that's why it, that if if that is true, that's very likely where it happened is that transition between habilis and erectus. Yeah. Because erectus has a way bigger brain than habilis, and to support the brain. Yeah. It takes way more nutrients. And I think that they were talking about the teeth are kind of the same, except for the third molar, which is extremely smaller in erectus versus the homo habilis. Mm -hmm. So there is kind of a changing in the mouth structure, which is really important because the smaller your mouth is, it's an indication that the energy spent isn't going towards the chewing of the actual food. Hmm. Yeah, and again, and then, and then when you take into consideration that the the mid sagittal crest on the top of the skull, mm-hmm. that's not needed anymore. If you're chewing softer food, you don't need that gigantic muscle structure in your jaws anymore. Right. So there's just there's more space for a larger brain. You become smarter. So it, not about smarter. Yeah. But yeah. There's not that meant much yeah. evidence for correlations between brain size and intelligence, but. It, it does make a difference. It does make a difference. Like, yeah, and it, I think the bigger difference is the brain size to body ratio. Mm. Whereas, like a blue whale, they have relative to us, they have yeah, huge, huge brains, brains. but, but relative huge, to their size, yeah, yeah. <laughs> they're pretty small. Same with dinosaurs. <laughs> like a T. Rex has a tiny brain compared to its size, or yeah. that's that's the the theory anyway, just based yeah. off of the fossils. But I also think that 
herbivores have smaller brains than carnivores. Mm-hmm. Which makes sense because the carnivore has to outsmart the well, herbivore. So, that and that's too. An also so an it's indication. Like, it's, yeah. it's, uh, what is it? it's multivariate. Mm-hmm. There's different... It's not just one thing. And so... so the, the, so we're we're kind of this episode's kind of getting long. So we we didn't get to a lot of different things. There's plenty. There's a lot of there's evidence, a lot. and yeah. there's a lot of different theories that are connected with the cooking hypothesis. But there's also other hypotheses and other theories about why our brains got bigger mm-hmm. and why we became quote unquote. I'm using air quotes here. <laughs> why we became human, and that's something we'll get into in the next episode. Yeah. Well, there's also evidence that shows that there's late fire adaptations so that we didn't use it right away but later on we had fire adaptations mm-hmm. so there's a whole lot of other stuff that you can get into yes and and we encourage anyone listening to get get on google especially google scholar it's an amazing resource it's totally free and you can find all sorts of literature and mm-hmm. it's not and i i don't think that it's necessary to analyze articles super in depth especially if you're not used to reading scientific literature Mm -hmm. but you can get on there and just read the abstract which is just the first part of every article and that will break it down for you and you can read the last part of the abstract and it'll tell you what they basically what their conclusions are Mm -hmm. and if you're even more curious and you get really into it you can actually read the article and look at what their results are and how they got their measurements and all this other stuff and there's lots of really cool stuff about what they find in teeth, in the calculus in teeth, and the fossil evidence in, of fire going way far back, mm-hmm. hundreds of thousands of years. And and we'll probably return to this in the next episodes also. Yeah. Because then in the next episode, we're going to start talking about things like maybe it was the, uh, the advent of more complex social structures that drove brain size increases. Mm-hmm. And that's another one of the big theories and why our brains got bigger is our societies got more complex. Mm-hmm. And because we had to recognize more individuals, our, our linguistic capacity increased, our brains got bigger. Mm-hmm. And so that's for the next episode, which will be about language and yeah. art. Maybe we won't talk about art, but for sure <laughs> language. Art. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, art has plays a lot when it comes to uh, non-verbal you know, I think like pictographs and other like Sumerian cultures that used um, symbols. Mm-hmm. But that that's really recent. That's very that recent. That is very recent. Where, whereas some of the evidence for this social brain hypothesis is going back hundreds of thousands of years. Yeah. Well, I think there's a lot of animals that have communication, you know, now that it would be crazy not to think that back then they didn't have some form of communicating to each other. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, yeah, and I think the main argument, and we'll get into this in depth in the next episode, is that the the complexity of the communication mm-hmm. is where the that what drove the increases in brain size, and diff- especially certain parts of the brain. Mm. And again, most of the evidence for that is not direct evidence. They just look at they look at skull structure, and then they compare that to modern humans and our physiology. And then they compare that to other animals that have really complex signaling and complex languages of their own and try to, then they put all the pieces together to try to ask and answer that question. Mm -hmm. When did language show up? 
would be a good episode. Yeah, and so again, we'll, we'll probably say a lot of the same names: Neanderthals, Thals, Neand- Neanderthalis, the Erectus. Erectus. And that's right around where it gets starts getting shady, and we're not totally sure exactly yeah. where that'll lead. But thanks for tuning in. If you have any suggestions for episode topics, drop us a comment or send us an email. We're mm-hmm. always happy to explore new ideas and have conversations yeah. about interesting things. <laughs> yeah. Um, so before we end it, what are you thankful for this week? I'm thankful for... Mm, for breathing. Hey, that's a good one. Yeah. That is a good one. <laughs> to be able to take just the just the simple pleasure of breathing mm-hmm. is something that I think a lot of people take for granted. I know I do. Mm-hmm. And so to deal with my own inadequacies, yeah. I in my own daily dramas and the things that happen in life that just make life hard yeah one of the things i really love to do is wake up and just take a big deep breath into my stomach and really enjoy it oh yeah definitely and just just pay close attention to how pleasurable it really is Mm -hmm. it's super pleasurable when you really focus on a breath and it's a nice cool breath especially outside here in montana with all the beautiful smells the best oh god i I love breathing so much and and it's something i forget about every single day so i try to remind myself and Mm -hmm. one of the ways is to just be grateful for it and to take one grateful mindful breath every single day how about you that's a good one what are you grateful for um, well, it's almost my birthday. So That's right. I'm going to be thankful for that. It is in three days. Officially. Officially. But you're having your party today, right? Yeah. Yeah. Birthday party today with, oh man, my niece who will be 16. Mm. And then my... Ooh, sweet 16. No, she'll be is 15. She... Oh, okay. That was a joke. She'll be 15. Sorry, Eves. <laughs> I got it wrong. She'll be 15. 15. Sweet 15. <laughs> sweet 15. And then Toto... Semi-sweet 15. Semi-sweet. Yeah. And then uh, Toto, or Antonio, will be three. So we're oh. having a joint birthday party, so it should be a oh, good nice. time. So I'm very thankful for my nieces and my nephews, who there's a lot of them. And I'm going to have three more coming up in November, in October and November. So... Mm. And they're great. Were you going to be 29? Yeah. Yeah. Almost to that 30 mark. I was almost going to, I was going to be really impressed as because if you were going to be 30, those are all multiples of three. Oh, that would be multiples of yeah. three. Nope. I ruined it. <laughs> Damn it, oddball. Annie. I'm the oddball on that I was one. blowing it. <laughs> so yeah, just thankful for everybody. Um, this should be a good time. Cool. Well, thanks for joining us today. We'll catch you next time on the Indian Science Show. Thanks for joining us, everyone. If you like the episode, make sure you go to our iTunes page and you leave us a review. Yes. Give us a like. Yes, and five stars. Five stars. Just because, five stars. Just because you, you want to. If you don't like iTunes, you can also follow us on our social media pages. Oh, yeah, and you can drop a comment or leave a review on there, too. Yep, mm-hmm. and we also have a website. Yes, we do. <laughs> and it's a really cool one called... IndianScienceShow.wordpress.com. But oh. if you'd like to just access our site directly from the place that hosts it, it's the same thing, but IndianScienceShow.podient.co. We would love to hear from you guys. Yeah. And Indian Science Show is spelled N D N, 
S-C-I-E-N-C-E-S-H-O-W dot WordPress dot com. Thank you for lending us your ears. And now you should go use your fingers and your eyes to go leave us a review. Yes. <laughs> <laughs>